Let me read once more the words that we're considering together, which are found in Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, reading from verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now here we are examining the Apostle's method of uh, enabling uh, Christian people to uh, deal with the sufferings that are inevitable in the life of the Christian in a world such as this. And we have seen that his method essentially is of uh, drawing deductions from the great doctrines of the Christian faith. You know your faith, you then draw your deductions and put your trials and troubles and sufferings into the light of that. And the apostle then assures you that you will not only not be overcome by them, but you will become actually more than conqueror. Well now, we've seen some of the doctrines. The first was the right view of time. The second was the clear doctrine about the second coming of our blessed Lord and Saviour. Then the third uh, doctrine was the true and the right understanding of the state of the world, including the creation as it is at the present time. Now, we were dealing with that last time. And uh, the thing which we saw was this, that the whole of creation is looking forward to this glory. What the apostle is doing, you see, is this. Uh, he says the one thing that is absolutely vital is that we should understand the greatness of this coming glory. If we don't get that, of course, we'll miss the comfort. So we must be clear about the greatness of this coming glory. And the way in which he proceeds to show that is this. He says the whole of creation is looking forward to it, stretching forth its neck, its head, on the tiptoe of expectation, eager expectation. And it does that, he says, because of its present state and condition, which is uh, that uh, it's groaning and travailing, it's in a condition of vanity. And we saw that it's in that state because of the sin of men. This is a part of the punishment of men for his sin and rebellion against God. It is a part of the fall. We were suggesting that that is the only adequate explanation of the world, the creation that is round and about us as we see it at the present moment. This is not creation as God made it at the beginning. This is creation cursed because of the sin of men. Well now then, that's the point at which we have arrived. But it seems to me that at this point we must pause for a moment 
to draw certain very important deductions. And here they are. The uh, first is that the state of the world is not to be explained and cannot be explained by the theory of evolution. Now that's the first deduction which we draw at this point. According to that theory, everything is progressing and developing and is advancing. And they, the people who hold that theory of evolution would, as you know, have us believe that the present state of, of affairs as regards men and indeed as regards the whole of life is only an intermediate one. And uh, that things are as they are, well, because we've only advanced to this particular stage and level. That's the view which you've got a hold of men and of the whole universe if you do subscribe to that theory of evolution. But here we get the exact opposite to that. Here the plain teaching is uh, that it's all the result of a fall, that it's a calamity, that everything is not on a, a, at a particular stage in an upward trend, but everything has been reduced from what it was to its present state and condition. So the explanation of the state of the whole of creation is not incomplete development. It is the result of the cursing which God has meted out as a part of the punishment of men for the folly of his rebellion and his sin. As I put it, God is not going to allow men to enjoy the benefits of his position as Lord of creation when, as the result of his sin, he has forfeited that. So that creation is as it is and is suffering not because of anything that it has done, but because of what man has done. Well, very well. It seems to me to throw a very important light, therefore, on this uh, whole belief in evolution that has so captured the public imagination now for a number of years and is the greatest controlling influence perhaps in the thought of mankind in practically every realm of life and of living. Here's the exact negation of that. But then that leads to a second deduction which is this. The all importance for the Christian of the early chapters of the book of Genesis now, there is a tendency on the part of some to say today that you can be a Christian and hold the doctrines of the Christian faith, uh, but at the same time ride very loosely to the early chapters of Genesis. But it doesn't matter whether they're true or not, that you can hold on to your doctrines of salvation, uh, whether the early chapters of Genesis are literal history or whether they're some sort of myth. Now, here again is an example and uh, an illustration of the fact that that is not and cannot be the case. We've already come across this in the fifth chapter of this great epistle in verses 12 to 21, where again the apostle based a very central argument and a very vital argument on the historicity of Adam. Well, now here he is doing the same thing. You cannot really hold the biblical doctrine of salvation without accepting its history. And a part of that history is, as this passage shows so plainly, that creation is as it is because at a given point in history, as Genesis 3 tells us, God cursed the earth. So you are in 
a very dangerous position when you think you can hold on to the doctrines of the Christian faith and reject the factual element, the historical element. This passage again ought to remind us of what a precarious thing it is to do that. So I go on to a third deduction, which is this one. That uh, there is no hope for creation and for the cosmos in terms of evolution. This passage, of course, again gives the lie direct to that. There is no hope for man, there is no hope for creation in terms of evolution. The Bible holds out no hope whatsoever in that respect. That as the centuries pass, things will get better, man will improve, he'll improve his environment, and at last you'll arrive at a state of perfection. Now, here we're told it's the exact opposite. That uh, you find nothing, if you look at the creation itself, but vanity. There is nothing in creation that leads to an optimistic view of the future, either of man or of creation. It's all vanity. Indeed, uh, uh, science, in a sense, uh, confirms this. It talks about its second law uh, in thermodynamics, which would teach us that the whole universe is running down. Now, that does fit in with this. But the optimistic idea that things are going to advance and develop is quite foreign to the biblical teaching. The Bible rather teaches that uh, there is to be a crisis, there is to be a judgment, there is to be an end to the world as it is, and that something different is to be introduced. So that you see in every conceivable point, the teaching here is diametrically opposed to what is so commonly and currently held at the present time. And then I come to my last deduction, which is this that there is only one hope. And that is, of course, in the character of God himself. Well, how? Well, like this. The only hope for the creation, for the whole universe, as well as men, is in the character of God, and in this way. God's glory and God's honor prohibit his leaving the world as it is. If God is God, and if God is the great creator, and if God is all-powerful, and if God has all rule and authority and at his command, well then, I say, the very character of God makes it quite impossible that he should leave even creation as it is at the present time. He cannot leave it in this condition of vanity. He cannot leave it in this condition of groaning and travailing. It is inconsistent with the character of God that this should be the permanent state of affairs. And of course that is the very thing the Bible tells us. So that in a very odd way we get an insight into what the Apostle is saying here. You look out at creation and you see the imperfections, you see the vanity. And you say, very well, the very fact that it is like that is to me proof positive that it isn't always going to be like that. Because God is God, he cannot leave it like that. He must do something about it. And that's the very thing that we are told that he is going to do. Well, now then, there are the deductions which we draw from the fact that we have already considered. But now we must go on beyond that. 
the apostle, as we've already seen, says that that is not only the explanation of the state of creation and of the world as it is at the present time, but he adds to that that the creation is actually looking forward to this glory that is to come because it itself is going to play a part in it. It's going to share in it. Now then, on what grounds is that statement made? Well, here are the answers. Here, here are the ways in which the apostle puts this before us. Take the 20th verse. The creature, he said, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Now, I didn't mention those last two words last Friday night, because there I was only concerned to show this that the world is as it is because it's a part of the punishment of man's sin, that it was made subject to vanity, not willingly. But now, the statement doesn't stop at that. It has been subjected to the same in hope. Now, what does this mean? Well, it seems to me that there's only one adequate explanation of this. That at the very self-same time that God did curse the earth, he also gave a hope of deliverance. Now that is the important thing about Genesis 3. And that is why it is so essential to the understanding of the biblical doctrine and teaching concerning salvation. Man sinned. God came down, told men what was going to happen to him as the result of his sin, and then told him that he was cursing the earth. And that henceforth he wouldn't just pick the fruit and eat it. He'd have to work by the sweat of his brow. He'd have to struggle against nature. He'd have to keep down the thorns and the briars. That's going to be life. Well, now, this is a terrible thing. Nature, creation is cursed. Yes, but God didn't stop at that. He said that there was going to be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But he did promise that there was going to be a victory that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. Now, there is the hope. We saw last time that creation is inevitably and always tied up to man. Well, very well. If there is a promise of a hope of the deliverance of men, it includes the promise of the hope of the deliverance of the creation. So, you see, we read that uh, by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. God has given a, a promise and a hope to the creation at the very moment when he originally cursed it. As if God was saying to creation, I am cursing you because of the sin of men. But this isn't, this isn't always to be your condition. It is to be your condition until I deliver men and then your deliverance will come also. Now, surely it's obvious to all of us that we see here the complete difference between the biblical teaching and everything that man has ever thought or suggested. This is teaching that you only find here. And as I'm emphasizing, it is the exact opposite of all the hopeful idealistic optimism that characterizes those who believe in evolution. Very well. In hope. But then you see we've got another phrase here, which is a very interesting one and an important one in verse 22. We know 
that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. He says we know this. We are aware of this. But what does it mean? What does he mean by saying that the whole creation is groaning and travailing in pain together? Now, people have sometimes been confused about this expression together. What's together mean? Does it mean together with the Christians? Well, no, it doesn't. It's just another way of saying every part of creation, the whole of it together, every part and portion, every aspect, it's all in this groaning and travailing in pain. But what does that mean? Well, here again, there have been some who have thought that this just means the sort of agony that is in nature. The predatory character of some animals that live on others. That uh, nature, if you come to look into it very carefully and very closely, can be a very depressing picture. Oh, I know, it's a wonderful thing to look up at the sun on a day like this and to look at some beautiful flowers or take a general view of the landscape. You look into nature and you'll find there's an awful lot of suffering in the animal realm and in every other realm. So they say that all that it means is that nature, creation, when you really look into it, is full of pain, it's full of suffering, it's full of death. But of course that isn't what the apostle is saying for a moment. If he were putting it like that, he'd be contradicting the statement he's just made about in hope. Indeed, he would be contradicting what he says in between in verse 21, because the creature itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What does it mean then? Well, here, let me very readily and gladly read to you the new English translation, which puts it like this. It says that the whole creation groans in all its parts, as if in the pangs of childbirth. And that is undoubtedly what it means. This travel generally has the connotation of childbirth. The apostle uses the same expression exactly in writing to the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 19. My little children, of whom I travel in birth again until Christ be formed in you. The groaning and the traveling has reference to the pangs of childbirth. And what he's saying here is that the whole of creation is in this kind of process of trying to give birth to something better. And it's a painful process. It's in pain. There's a kind of agony involved in all this. It is the travel of childbirth in, in producing this newborn something to which it's looking forward. And here he says that that is the condition of the whole of creation at the present time. That it is going through this kind of pangs of childbirth in an attempt to produce this something better that it knows is coming for it. Well, again, this is one of these wonderful personifications of nature which the apostle uses from time to time. But somebody may very rightly ask, well, where does he see that? How does he know that? Is this just pure imagination on the part of the great apostle? Uh, on what grounds does he make such a statement? Well, uh, we don't know exactly, but I can suggest certain answers to you. One of them is a pure bit of speculation. I wonder whether the spring is a part of this. 
nature this time of the year, every year, is as it were making an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It's come out of the death and the darkness and the all that is so true of the winter. And here it is in the spring as if it's trying to produce a perfect creation, going through some kind of birth pangs year by year in the spring. But unfortunately it doesn't lead to anything because spring leads only to summer and summer to autumn and autumn to winter. Poor old nature trying every year to defeat this vanity, this principle of death and decay and disintegration that is in it. But it can't do it. It fails every time. It still goes on trying to do it as if it feels it should be different, it should be better, but it never succeeds. So it goes on groaning and travailing in pain together until now. It's been doing it for a very long time. The Apostle wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. It's still doing it. Well, now then, here is an important statement. We mustn't misinterpret that, therefore. There are many who do misinterpret it. There are many people who always preach on the resurrection in that way, don't they? They say, this is the message of the resurrection, that there's a sort of hopefulness after all, that no death comes. There's always a new beginning. The resurrection is like the spring. After the death of winter, burst of life, it's all right, they say, don't be pessimistic. It's going to be all right in the end. There's a struggle going on, and eventually out of it all will come this resurrection life. Now, that's not the thing the apostle is talking about at all. What he's saying is this. Not that this groaning and travailing of nature is eventually going to produce the perfect state. He's saying the exact opposite to that. That unfortunately, it's the struggle and the agony and the birth pangs, but it never brings anything to birth. And that, of course, is not only true of the whole of the creation, it's true of man himself. Man's a born optimist. He's always going to make a perfect world. He's been saying that ever since he fell, but he's never succeeded. There have been periods when he thinks he's got it. The world's advancing and developing. Round goes the cycle, back again he goes to his dark eras and to his condition of hopelessness. Now, the apostle here, therefore, is not giving any grounds whatsoever for this false, idealistic optimism. What he is saying is that there is no hope whatsoever in the thing in and of itself. None at all. Very well. But he's showing that there is this kind of consciousness in creation, that it was meant for something better. It makes its new resolutions as man does. Nature does every spring what men tend to do on the 1st of January, but nothing comes of it. A lot of agony and sweat and proposal, back you go to winter again. Very well, but that isn't the basis, therefore, of the real optimism. What is it? Oh, it's this in hope again. It's the biblical prophecies. We shall look into them later in greater detail. But there are promises in the Old Testament. There are promises in the New Testament that there's going to be a different state for creation. That's the, that's the basis. Nothing that creation can produce. Something that's going to be done to creation. God's going to do it to creation. As he cursed it, he's going to restore it. And then the other ground, of course, the fourth ground of this optimism is this. This connection, once more, between men and creation. 
Now, we've already seen it negatively. Because creation is tied to men. When men fell, creation was cursed. All right, but that's only one side. Look at the other side. And here's the argument. As it is certain and sure that man is going to be delivered, I mean by men those who are believers, those who are in Christ, those who are saved, those who belong to him. As that is certain, so it is equally certain that they shall have a creation which corresponds to them. So all the promises for men's final deliverance are proof positive at the same time that there is going to be this deliverance for the whole of creation. It's tied to men, and what happens to men is inevitably and certainly going to happen to it. Now then, there we've worked through the argument. And we've been working through the argument in order now that we may proceed to take a positive view of this glory which is coming. That's what he's doing. The whole of creation is looking forward to it. We ourselves, he says, are looking forward to it. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. The redeemed are looking forward. The creature, the creation, it's all looking forward. Why? Well, because, he says, the thing is so glorious. What is it? Now, here, it seems to me that the division of the matter is this. You see the greatness of the glory of this which is to come. First of all, in our blessed Lord and Savior himself. His glory. Then, secondly, you see it in us, the redeemed. And thirdly, you see it in creation itself. Now, that's the thing that he holds before us. You Christian people, he says, who are suffering together with him. If you've only understood this business, you will soon see that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's the thing to look forward to. Nature, inanimate nature's doing it. Well, how much more so ought we to do it? Well, what is it? Well, look at it in him first. His glory, we sh if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together. He's going to be glorified. You start with him always. Nothing happens to us apart from him. So you start with him. What is this glory that is coming to him? Well, of course, we are told something about it in the scriptures. We are given a glimpse of it, of course, in the event which took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that our Lord took Peter and James and John with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm taking the account of it in Matthew 17 at the beginning. I read in verse 2 that he was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as light. Now there's a glimpse of this glory which is going to be manifested when he returns and comes again. The manifestation of the Son of God or of the Lord of glory. Now, you remember that the Apostle Peter, who was there and was an eyewitness, he never forgot this. So you remember in comforting Christian people who were going through a lot of difficulties, 
he says this, I endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were I witnesses of his majesty. For he received from the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Now that's 2 Peter 1 verses 15 to 18. Now there's a glimpse of it. They were with him. They were familiar with him. They'd been with him and listening to him. But suddenly on that mount they saw this transfiguration, this transformation, this shining of the glory, this bright light which is ever the characteristic of holiness and of the glory of God. Now then, that is something of this glory which shall be revealed in him when he comes. Then there's another glimpse of it in Matthew 24, in verses 29 to 31. Here it is. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's it. With power and with great glory. Then, fortunately for us, The martyr Stephen was given a certain glimpse of this. Let's read what we find there in Acts 7, 55 and 56. But he, Stephen, 55, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now there is a glimpse of the same thing. It passes description, of course, but these men were given their glimpses and they give us something of the account. The Apostle Paul, the author of this epistle to the Hebrews, he knew something about it. Go to the ninth chapter of Acts, And you begin at the beginning there, you remember the account of his going down from Jerusalem to Damascus. And as he journeyed, I read in verse 3, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined right about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? He saw the risen, glorified Lord. But what he first saw was this bright light from heaven, this dazzling effulgence. That's a part of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what's going to be revealed. He will come as he is now in glory. The apostle had a glimpse and it threw him on his back, blinding him. The glory of it all. It's not surprising that he writes as he does at this point. And of course, 
He tells us more about this. Take that statement which we read at the beginning from the second epistle to the Thessalonians, where he puts it again very clearly when he talks about the brightness of his coming, the brightness of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing beyond that. He says, to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. And then in the second chapter of that second epistle in verse 8, then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. These are the terms that are always used, light and brightness and shining. And in exactly the same way, Paul exhorts Timothy and all others, you remember, to look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing or the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's always in terms of this great glory and brightness. But go on to the book of Revelation, which is, of course, particularly concerned with this. And you get it even in the first chapter, in verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. But listen to this detailed description, which begins in verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Men, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass, and in, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now, this is imagery, of course, but it's all designed to give us this impression of his glory. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It's not surprising that the persecuting Saul on the road to Damascus should have fallen. Here's an apostle. When he gets this glimpse, he fell at his feet as one dead. Because of this shining of the glory, his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. You can't imagine anything beyond that. You've got another description of him in chapter 5, in verses 6 to 8. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, seven is the number of perfection, you remember, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth, strength and meekness, the glory of the conqueror, and yet the tenderness of the Lamb of God. Well, this is something I say which you find everywhere. Let me give you just a word from chapter 17 of that book of Revelation. And in verse 14, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. But then you must go on to the 19th chapter for a great 
and a noble description beginning at verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Supreme above everybody. Yes, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. Very well, there is some of the indication that is given us in the Scriptures of the glory of his coming when he shall come. Remember, it is a glory that is to be revealed. Who is to see it? Every eye shall see him. The whole cosmos shall see him. There is nobody that shall not see him. This is the teaching of the Bible everywhere. He shall be seen as he is in this character of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is to be admired by us, according to that passage in 2 Thessalonians 1, admired in them that believe. But as for the others, to be feared. Every eye shall see him, yea, and they that pierced him. And they shall wail, and they shall lament. And listen to the description which is given at the end of the sixth chapter of this book of Revelation, 15 to the end. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now, that's the day that the creation is looking forward to. That is the glory, that's the glory as it will appear in him when he comes again at God's appointed time. There is something of the glory that is true of him. But secondly, there is our glory. This great day with its glory which is coming is not only to be a manifestation of his glory, but of our glory. Now, our terms make us say that if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together. There's one of them. Then he says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Part of the glory is to be revealed in us and through us. Then he says that the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's the thing. 
They're waiting for this glory which is to be shown partly in us. Now then, to whom are we to be shown in glory? We've seen that the Lord is to be shown to everybody. To whom are we to be shown? Well, it's more or less true of us also. We are with him. Not only that, we are a part of his glory. Listen to Ephesians 3.10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. You remember how Hebrews 2 quotes from the Old Testament where it says, Our Lord will say, Behold me and the children which thou hast given me. He glorified, we glorified with him. And we will be on show, as it were. We are the proof of the manifold wisdom of God. But not only that, we shall be shown to the devil and all his angels and followers and all who are opponents of the Lord. Here, you see, is the final triumph of God over the devil. It is in us. We shall be shown in our glory. This is what man has become as the action of God in Christ. This is what the Son has made of the ruin and the havoc wrought by the devil, who was so pleased with himself and proud with himself because he'd persuaded men to fall and had brought this vanity into the very warp and woof of creation. Here's the answer we will be held forth and the glory will be shown in and through us. And it will be shown also not only to the devil and his angels, but to the whole of creation. There's a very wonderful statement about us and our future glory in the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, verses 41 to 43. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Did you notice what it says? Then shall the righteous Shine forth as the sun. That's what he's like, isn't it? Those are the very words used about him. That is what you see when you look into the face of the glorified Lord, this shining, this brightness, this light of the sun. But it's, it's to be true of us. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And the whole of creation will be looking not only at him, but also at us. He shining as the sun, we shining as the sun, in his righteousness, in his glory, in his glorification. Very well. We must leave it at that for this evening. We haven't finished yet with the part that we shall play in this great glory. For we must go on to consider what we will be like then. We must also go on to consider what we shall be enjoying then. And we must also consider what we shall be doing then. Or work it out for yourselves. All we have seen tonight is that in that great day, we shall be shining as the sun as he is. 
John puts it, you remember, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. Now, my friends, do you live by these things? Are you having a hard time? Are you suffering? Have you got trials and troubles and tribulations? And have you had a very unhappy and miserable week? Have you been listening to the devil and are you down and discouraged and depressed and disconsolate? If you are, shame on you. Shame on you. It doesn't matter what our condition is this evening. We've got to take that and put it into the light of this which is coming. You, Christian, whatever you are, however humble and lowly, however ignorant and fallible, however suffering, you are going to be manifested in that great day. And you will shine as the brightness of the sun. The righteous shall shine like the sun. You. Now then, that's the apostolic method. Whatever our state or condition or circumstances, don't look at that. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's monstrous. And we are just fools if we listen to the devil and allow him to depress us. You are going to shine like the sun in glory in that great day. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do pray that thou wouldest forgive us and pardon us for our folly, for our failure not to consider these things and to know them as we ought. O God, forgive us, we pray thee, especially this night, that we are so prone just to read the words without considering their meaning and without applying them to ourselves. Forgive us for this unbelief that still remains in us. Forgive us that we are so ready to listen to the devil who would have us believe that this is but poetry, that it's too good to be true. Oh, God, forgive us for our unbelief and teach us as little children to take thy word and to believe it as it is, that we may rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, God, by thy Spirit, awaken our understandings Apply thy word to us so that our hearts shall be moved and we shall be filled with a sense of wonder, love, and of praise. Hear us, O Lord, as we pray, pleading nothing but the name and the merit of thy dear Son, our blessed Lord and Saviour. And now may the grace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this short, uncertain, mere earthly life and pilgrimage, and until, with all the righteous, we shall shine forth as the sun. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. 
And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.